Byzantium and the First Crusade by Nick Holmes, Episode 2. In the first episode, we heard how the Battle of Manzikert ended in disaster for Byzantium. Now let's look at how this led to the First Crusade. So let's fast forward 24 years to the year 1095. By then, the Byzantines have lost nearly all of modern-day Turkey to the Turks. They're about to be annihilated. So what do they do? They make a desperate plea to the West to save them. Now that plea is made to the Pope, who is called Urban II, and he preaches for a crusade. They certainly didn't call it a crusade at the time. It was actually called a pilgrimage to save Byzantium and to restore Jerusalem to Christianity. Why is he doing this? Well, it's for all sorts of reasons. I think he is genuinely shocked that the Turks are about to destroy Byzantium, but he also sees a crusade as a way of extending his own authority, both in the West and also over the Byzantine Church, because he wants the Byzantines to acknowledge the Catholics as leaders of the Christian Church. And really by far the most extraordinary thing was that this appeal connected with ordinary people living in medieval Europe. There were religious leaders, most prominently Peter the Hermit, who whipped up a religious frenzy. And the response was overwhelming. Probably a couple of hundred thousand people, men, even women and children, left their homes to journey thousands of miles east, where most of them had hardly been outside their villages. Now, there were four main leaders of the First Crusade, all of them noblemen. One interesting point is that it's not the royalty who led the crusade. They didn't even participate, and the reason for this is that at this time, medieval Europe was intensely feudal, so there were no centralised armies, or at least they weren't very big, and the monarchs, although they did exist, were not very powerful, and the aristocracy were the bulk of the soldiers, and as we will find out, they were exceptionally good soldiers. Of the four main leaders, one of them will make his mark in the crusade as a military genius, and his name is Bohemond. He's a Norman from Sicily, and he's already proved himself as a capable commander, ironically mainly fighting the Byzantines in the 1080s, when the Sicilian Normans invaded Byzantine Albania and Greece, but were ultimately defeated by the Byzantine Emperor Alexius Comnenus. Another interesting point is that there are no English on the First Crusade. They're all Franks and Normans with a few Germans. The English are only important in the Third Crusade, which is about 100 years later, and led, of course, in that case by one of England's most famous kings, Richard the Lionheart. So back to the First Crusade, and the first group to reach Constantinople is what's called the People's Crusade. This is essentially a mass of tens of thousands of peasants as well as a few thousand knights led by Peter the Hermit. The Byzantines don't like this lot, who tend to loot and pillage everywhere they go, so they ship them over the Bosphorus where the Turks have very little trouble in slaughtering all of them. But after the People's Crusade, the real Crusader army arrives, and this is a very different proposition. It's an army of somewhere between fifty to 100,000 of the best knights and foot soldiers in Europe, including a lot of Normans from both Normandy and also uh, Sicily, who are exceptionally good soldiers. 
So the Crusaders gather at Constantinople, they swear allegiance to the Byzantine Emperor Alexius Komnenos, and then they cross over to Asia. And the first battle with the Turks is going to be crucial, and it's outside Dorylaeon, which is in western Anatolia, or modern-day Turkey, and used to be a big military fortress for the Byzantines before it was overrun by the Turks. Now, before the battle, the Crusader army has divided into two because it's so big, one Norman, one Frankish, which makes it a lot easier to collect food and provisions as they march. But en route, the Normans, led by Bohemond, are ambushed by a very large Turkish army. And although Bohemond is putting up a heroic fight against the Turks, it looks as though they're going to be overwhelmed. Then just in time, they're saved by the Second Crusader Army, which consists of all the Franks who come to the rescue of the Normans. Together, they surround the Turks, and the Turkish army is utterly destroyed. And this victory is really due to the impressive unity of the Crusaders, which is very interesting because it stands in complete contrast to Manzikert, where, of course, the Byzantines were winning until Romanus was betrayed by his own side. Now, after the Battle of Dorinleon, the Crusaders march across modern Turkey. This has been devastated by the Turks, and there are plenty of Turkish warbands living in the countryside, but after the Battle of Dorylaeon, the Turks are pretty cautious about attacking the Crusaders again, so the Crusaders are able to march across Turkey pretty much unopposed, and they cross the Taurus Mountains, which are in southern Turkey, large mountains just above the Mediterranean, and the next place they stop is in Syria at the great city of Antioch. Now, Antioch becomes a real problem for the Crusaders. It was actually a big Roman and then later Byzantine city, which fell to the Turks quite recently, only in 1084. And it has massive fortifications, which the Crusaders just can't breach. So they're held up for about a year besieging Antioch. And the additional problem is that the Turks keep on attacking them as they lay siege to the city. Fortunately for the Crusaders, the Seljuk Turkish Empire is at this time in a process of disintegration, and the Turkish emirs are largely independent of each other, and they attack the Crusaders separately rather than uniting into one very large army. And I think this is really the main reason why the First Crusade is so successful. However, even though the Turks are divided, the armies they field are still pretty formidable, and there are three different Turkish armies that attack the Crusaders while they're laying siege to Antioch, and each time it's the Norman leader, Bohemond, who defeats the Turks. Now, as I already mentioned, he's an outstanding general, and in the first two battles he wins these because he puts all of the knights into a cavalry charge which he manages to launch at just the right moment in the battle against the Turks and completely routs them. Finally, Antioch falls. Again, it's Beaumont who achieves this by bribing the Turkish guards on a section of the walls to let the Crusaders in. However, even though Antioch has fallen, the Crusaders' problems are far from over because the biggest Turkish army of all appears, this time led by the emir of Mosul, and the besiegers become the besieged as the Turks surround them in Antioch. 
The Crusaders also have another problem, which is that they've lost all their horses. This is because they've run out of food, they're starving, they haven't been able to feed their horses. Indeed, they've probably eaten most of them. So the Crusaders are in a very, very bad way. But yet again, it's Bohemond who saves the day. He knows the Crusaders can't rely on their cavalry charge to defeat the Turks. So what he does is to put all the knights with the infantry in large infantry blocks. Now, this is fairly radical since knights are normally too proud to fight with the infantry. But with Bohemond in charge, they put up with it. And early in the morning, he launches a surprise attack on the Turks who aren't expecting this because they simply don't think the Crusaders can launch an attack on them without their horses. Indeed, the Turkish Sultan is playing chess. He's so sure there won't be a Crusader attack. And when he looks up, he sees row upon row of Crusaders marching across the plain towards the Turkish camp. The Turks panic. They ju- jump on their horses, they charge at the Crusaders, but they've got no battle plan. It's chaos. The Crusaders push them aside quite easily and capture the Turkish camp and the Turkish army collapses and flees the field. After this victory, the Crusaders are finally ready to advance on Jerusalem. But suddenly, there's a new problem, because Beaumont says he's staying in Antioch. He claims the city for himself, And there's a pretty big bust-up between the Crusaders. It's very unusual because one of the key reasons for their success has been their unity. And after heated argument, the Crusaders agree to divide, and Beaumont stays in Antioch while the rest head south. And if that wasn't bad enough, then they find that they've also got a new enemy because while the Seljuk Turkish Empire has been disintegrating, there's been a resurgence in the other main Muslim empire, which is based in Egypt and ruled by the Fatimids. It's called the Fatimid Caliphate. Now, the Fatimids have actually taken Jerusalem from the Seljuks, and when the Crusaders reach Jerusalem, they're faced with a difficult siege because Jerusalem has very large fortifications. Indeed, you can still see them today. But in spite of this, they eventually manage to scale the walls and take Jerusalem on the 15th of July, 1099. Now, you might well think that with Jerusalem captured, it's all over. Certainly, that's what the Crusaders were hoping. But unfortunately for them, it's far from over because there's a very large Egyptian army. It's a Fatimid army marching up from Cairo to meet them. Now, at this point, there are only about 12,000 Crusaders left to meet this Fatimid army, which is two to three times bigger. But the Crusaders are on a religious high. A lot of them genuinely think that by capturing Jerusalem, heaven and earth will be united in one apocalypse. So they head straight out to fight the Egyptians, and this is their last and perhaps most heroic battle. It's at a place called Ascalon on the coast, very close to Egypt. By this time, the Normans have got new horses so they can make their legendary cavalry charge. They plan the battle very carefully to surprise the Egyptians by attacking very early in the morning. The Egyptians think there are so few crusaders left that they can't possibly attack them, and they're in fact busy making siege engines to recapture Jerusalem. And then suddenly in the morning, as the Fatimids wake up, they see thousands of knights thundering towards them. And this time there's another 
Norman leading them. It's not Beaumont, who's still at Antioch, but it's William the Conqueror's eldest son, Robert of Normandy, and he leads a devastating cavalry charge that goes straight through the Egyptian ranks, and Robert actually seizes the main Egyptian standard himself, and the Fatimid army just disintegrates. And that is the final end of the First Crusade. It was really one of the most epic military campaigns in history, easily on a par with those of Alexander the Great or Napoleon or Julius Caesar. And in the third and final episode of this podcast series, I'll be looking at what happened to both Byzantium and the Middle East after the First Crusade and how the Fourth Crusade in 1204 resulted in one of the most unexpected events in history, the sacking of Constantinople by the Crusaders. Thank you for listening.